Welcome back to Inside My Canoe Head, a podcast about self-reliance and building a more resilient lifestyle. Today is episode number three of our five-part series on individual emergency preparedness. My name is Jeff. I'm your host. Today we're going to talk about no one is coming to help you. So let's get to it. All right, to recap from our la- our first two episodes, the first episode was all about convincing you that individual emergency preparedness is an attitude. A little bit of government background, sure, to try to tell you what how the Canadian government organizes itself, and a lot of international governments are going to be similar to that. But the idea was basically that you have to look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself that, that very important question, who is responsible for my outcomes? You can make excuses, you can be a victim and blame what your current circumstances on everybody else or you can decide that you are responsible for your outcomes and adopt an attitude that was first and foremost the second episode we wanted to just give you a bit of framework and background as to why people are unprepared from a research perspective you know they've done about 30 to 40 years of detailed uh, survey work in this field and it has come around pretty much in the last two to three years to changing a bit of that but let's be frank or we have a very good idea from scientific research as to demographic categories that have significant impact on an individual's decision to become prepared we also talked about vulnerable communities and how they may be affected by disasters and differentiate them from regular parts of society and then we talked a bit about individual and collective resilience and that is all about your self-efficacy your self-confidence and these are things that are important to understand again if you want to make that decision to adopt individual emergency preparedness as a mindset and a lens at how you look through life so today's goal is to look at what the true and actual factual capabilities of municipalities, provinces, or states, and the federal governments are to respond in case of an emergency. Because far too often, and I found this when I did my master's research on business continuity, which is emergency management for businesses, that the number one theme that came out of it is that there was this belief that this magical thing called government would be coming to your rescue, and that you paid your taxes into this system, and therefore the system is responsible for coming to help you. And this goes back to our first question from the first episode, who is responsible for your outcomes? And by default, almost like an insurance policy, the majority of people think that their municipal government is built ready and capable to come rescue them. And so today what I would thought I would do is go over a little bit of details and hopefully to flesh out for you that maybe your expectations of the capability and capacity of your municipal government to deal with pending emergencies might be just a little bit different than reality. But first and foremost, we want to outline and put a framework about what we're going to talk about. So the first thing is municipalities are staffed and are functioning to deal with regular emergencies. So large-scale fires, uh, large-scale medical incidents, or a security incident, they have the police, EMS, and fire resources to deal with that. They can take a little bit from one part of the city and move it to the other to deal with the surge capacity and that type of thing. So we're not talking about major 
major incidents that may occur like you know you have a tornado go through one part of town well they can throw all the city's resources at that sick that sector of the town that was hit by a tornado and do a lot of great work and help some people there and so really a lot of times that just creates a significant emergency for the city but it doesn't create a disaster and we talked about those definitions a couple episodes ago but what i want to talk about is what we refer to in in industry and, and to be frank with you, between academia, professionals, and pundits, which we also have to consider, heterogeneity on this topic, which simply means nobody can agree on a lot of these definitions about significant this, significant that. But today what we're going to talk about is a significant incident. And this is what I refer to as a municipal disaster and a loss of at least one, if not more, pieces of critical infrastructure which essentially puts the municipality incapable of responding to the breadth and depth of the requirements. Now, to understand what I'm talking about, you have to understand what critical infrastructure is. And critical infrastructures are those sectors of society that if you think they're all little pillars that are underneath your society and basically holds you up. It ensures the modern functioning of society and it's majority of things that we just count on every day and we probably don't give a great deal of thought to what would happen if they don't exist anymore. Now, across most of the world and across most of academia, it's divided into 16 sectors. But just because the Canadian government likes to be different, they've considered it into 10 sectors. And if you just follow me along, you'll understand what I mean about critical infrastructure. They talk about the health sector, the food sector, the finance sector, water, communications and information technology, safety, energy and utilities manufacturing, government operations, and transportation. So that's what the Canadian government thinks are the 10 critical infrastructure sectors. Now, they have a lot of frameworks and regulations before. It's important to know. There's regional uh, resilience assessments. Canada and U.S. have cooperation agreements on critical infrastructure sectors because a lot of it does cross the border. There's uh, risk horizons and risk assessments being done. There's national strategies for critical infrastructure, and there's action plans for critical infrastructure to deal with it. So that, again, like I said in the first episode, that's just to tell you that the government does think a lot about this critical infrastructure. They understand. But again, when you detail down into a lot of these documents that are all available on the Public Safety Canada's website, when you start reading about them, they get into government speak about collaboration, frameworks of agreements, uh, regular roundtables, quarterly assessments of regional capabilities, filling out frameworks and spreadsheets and databases on extensive capabilities and those type of things. It basically just means that the government is checking all the boxes to ensure that somebody has thought about, hey, listen, when this crashes, we need to talk to each other. You really shouldn't take plans like that as a security blanket. You should take plans like that, that at least somebody has had a conversation about it. But fair enough, that's the federal government. And we know in Canada, the federal government has very few capabilities other than the Canadian Armed Forces to bring to the table. There's a few other technical capabilities, etc., out of the Government Operations Centre. But in essence, it's really the Canadian Armed Forces that are the labour and muscle arm of the government. At a provincial level in Canada, uh, other than maybe a few technical areas like water bombing, you have a few areas. Some provinces have a provincial police force that can be brought to bear and they have certain capabilities. I know in Ontario, there is a specialized hospital, field hospital capability. 
I wouldn't call it a field hospital because they don't actually do surgical capability within this system. But okay, it's a bunch of beds that they can put under tents and bring medical people to work. Almost a vast majority of the resources available to be utilized and employed in disaster response lie at the municipal capability level. Just to give you an idea that I'm just not a one-off talking about this, there's an exceptional meteorologist and seismologist at a CBC Vancouver named Johanna Wagstaff. And several years ago, she did a podcast for CBC on what would happen when the Cascadia earthquake, subduction zone earthquake, happened in southwest BC at the level they, that they think is the worst possible case scenario. And she went through the list of what would be the emergency response and how the emergency responders would be coming back to it. So that's a very good read if you want to go out, just to, if you think that maybe I'm a bit of a wingnut out there and I don't know what I'm talking about a lot. You'll hear a lot of the same things in Joanna's work, um, but just you know, always go out and find whatever work you can. Another example of why it's important to study this is in the city of Ottawa, they reached level zero over 300 times for EMS in 2019. That means at over 300 instances out of 365 days, when you dialed 911 and needed an ambulance, there simply wasn't one available for you. Full stop. Sorry, your so-and-so is having a heart attack. We hope we could help. We'll try to be there later. They'll try to get some help out to you. I'll give you a prime example. Coming home on the bus one day, double-decker, top floor, uh, this um, gentleman about the same age as me, uh, takes a tumble down the stairs, separates his shoulder, popped right out of the socket. That's not very pleasant. He was very much in pain. And we waited on the side of the road on the bus for 45 minutes until an ambulance could be found and made available to send and recover this individual. There simply wasn't anybody else in the barn to help. So let's just be glad it wasn't a more significant injury or it happened at a certain time. But just so you know, that stuff is out there. Um, Another thing that we want to talk about today is this notion of first responders. And this, this raises a few ires in some people's minds, but fair enough. If you don't make people feel uncomfortable, you're probably not doing your podcast correctly. First responders have always been thought to be police, fire, and EMS. In reality, research shows across disasters going back to the 1800s and the early 1900s that by far the vast majority of people are aided and rescued by their friends, their colleagues, and the individuals right next door to them, especially in earthquakes. The vast, vast majority of people dug out of buildings are dug out by their friends and families in the immediate moments and very short aftermath. Now, yes, the the urban search and rescue, the heavy and the light urban search and rescue do wonderful jobs, and they're great hits for TV because they look great pulling people out on stretchers, etc. And that does happen, and they deserve kudos for that. But from an individual emergency preparedness perspective, you have to understand that first responders by research definitions are not police, fire, and EMS. They are the people around you. And remember last episode, we talked about your social capital, your social connection, and your group of friends that are in around and how strong that is positively affects your correlation. So if you have a disaster, if there is a major earthquake where you live, people who love you are going to come help you and they are going to be there a heck of a lot faster than first responders and the people all around you are there to help. This is in no way, shape or form a shot at first responders. It's just a reality that research shows us that the majority of help in almost any significant incident situation is rendered by fellow citizens and not by employees of the municipality. So what we want to talk about is what is the goals of the municipal 
agency around you. And if you look at almost all of the websites and the documentation provided publicly by municipalities, and for this podcast, and part of my previous research, I looked at about 62 or 63 municipal websites and analyzed their data and looked at what they thought would be the number one priority for municipal emergency management organizations in the response phase. And there are two things. One is maintenance and recovery of critical infrastructure. And the second is the protection of life. So right off the bat, you see that 50% of their number one goal is protection of critical infrastructure. But if you think about that, that makes a world of sense. If the water system goes down, it is far better to use resources to fix the water system than try to distribute water to a city of a million people or in metropolitan Toronto's case, a city of 6 million people. You want to get the water system back online. And protection of life means that immediate saving of life. But just think about it. if you have, have a significant incident inside a municipality that overwhelms your capability, you could be 24, 48 hours before your 911 call is answered. And in that case, you're going to have to be capable of dealing with the situation around you, helping your neighbors out, and at the same time, having your neighbors help you. So the idea behind understanding what the municipalities are up to is to understand how they structure it. We also have an issue with fire EMS and the police department. And this shows up when we talk about socioeconomic status. We know those are three fantastic professions and they're incredible people that work in them, but we also understand that they're not the most highly paid professions, depending on where they work. Studies in Vancouver have shown the majority of people working in police, fire, EMS, nurses, and some other critical fields, in fact, have commute times in excess of one hour from their place of work, simply because of the cost of living. If you don't make a high enough living, you can't live close to work and you have a longer commute. If you have a longer commute and there's a significant incident and logistical and lines of communication, roadways, railways, whatever they may be, are damaged or at least need to be inspected by an engineering team to be deemed safe before they could be used again, then your second shift is not coming to work. Your second shift that surge capacity that you would like to employ a fire police and EMS, they're not showing up because they simply can't get to. And the second part of that is, and research that has come out of Hurricane Katrina and some other disasters similar to that has shown that in most cases, no more than 40% of police, fire, and EMS will show up for work on the shift immediately following the incident. And that is simply because the majority of those people are concerned about their own family and welfare. And you have to look yourself in the mirror and I'd be frankly honest, I, I would be incorrect if I didn't do the same thing. If your family is unsafe, if your family is insecure, if your family's safety is at risk in any way, shape or form, are you going to sit them down, pat them on their head and wish them the best of luck, get in your mode of transportation and head in to do your job? The answer to that is no. And disaster studies have shown us that the majority, over 50%, will not come in if their families are significantly affected by whatever the incident happened. Now, if their families aren't incident, they're, they're coming in and they're fantastic individuals. They're going to do a great job, but they're like you and me. Their families are the number one priority in their lives and therefore they are going to take care of them first. So if you just think about that, the municipality is limited in its capability to respond. Its surge capacity is difficult to bring to bear. And now you're looking at 48 hours to have your 911 answered now you're starting to realize, hopefully, that there's a significant capacity limitation.
and there's a significant draw on emergency services. So when we talked about vulnerable populations in the last episode, you understand that there's certain groups of the population just based upon their socioeconomic status or any medical injuries they have, they are going to draw a disproportionately large amount of emergency services in the time of need. And what this means is that there isn't going to be an equal amount for everybody. And that's not a bad thing. You want the EMS, fire, and police to deal with the, the highest of people in the greatest of need, absolutely. But just understand that when you're thinning, the balance of need left for everyone else is going to be lower than expectation. So you, it's very difficult for a researcher or anyone to say, what is the right amount of police per capita? Nobody is expecting you to go out and do this kind of capability assessment yourself. That might be a little bit too far in the asking, but the point being is this. You are largely going to be on your own for the first 24 to 48 hours, maybe even up to 72 hours, following a significant incident within your municipality. And based upon that, if you adopt an individual emergency preparedness mindset and a philosophy you are going to be much more capable of being responsible for your own outcomes. Now, I must say, follow on my comments with the fact that I am a member of the International Association of Emergency Managers. Several of my friends and colleagues work in emergency management. My, the gentleman that I consider to be my mentor, for lack of a better term, Ian, he works and is a lifelong employee in the emergency management services in, in one of Canadian provinces, these are exceptional people. These are people who are dedicated their education and their work towards reaching the goal of helping as many people as they can. The municipal systems are simply designed to respond to significant emergencies that happen, train derailments, uh, large-scale fires, large-scale incidents. They are not in any way, shape, or form designed or staffed to respond to what I've define as a significant incident to where they are completely overwhelmed. Your emergency management organization, if it is a formal organization within your municipality, it's staffed by some pretty intelligent, smart individuals. A lot of time in your regional municipalities, it's done off the corner of the desk. And that's a phrase that's used to mean it's usually the district fire chief or the regional fire chief that has to manage the emergency plan off the corner of his desk, which means it's one, two, or three of a secondary duty that he has to do, and therefore, how much time can he actually spend to it? It's never a challenge of the individual. It's a challenge of the resources the individual has, and one of the most important resources we have is time. So the deal that's being made is the municipalities have laid down an agreement with you. You can call it a social contract, and it basically means that we're going to come to your rescue in about 72 hours, and that first 72 hours, you're largely on your own. That's the best that we can do for you. So from that perspective, it's very important for you to understand that those 72-hour kits and the lists that are on your municipal websites that if you checked all the boxes, you could consider yourself prepared, are all designed to give them that little bit of space that they believe they need to get themselves organized, to deal with the critical infrastructure so they can turn and focus on your individual needs. That's not a bad social contract, but the point being is most human beings can simply survive for 72 hours standing outside, drinking a little bit of puddle water. You don't need food, and as long as you got a reasonably warm jacket, you're going to survive. But the whole idea of individual emergency preparedness is not just survival, it's about thriving in the face of disruption and difficulty. And therefore, you don't believe that 
72 hours is the end time frame that you want to look at. So what we're going to do in the next episode of Inside My Canoe Head, we're going to look at all of the steps that you need to take to become more prepared and to start taking control of the future outcomes in your life and not relying on this magical thing called government and 911 to come rescue you and save you in the time of significant disruption in critical infrastructure and life. So hopefully you learned a little bit today. You took away the fact that, boy, individual resilience is certainly becoming a lot more important to me. And therefore, we look forward for you joining us next time on Inside My Canoe Head.